Well, let me again say good morning to all of you who are joining us here in the room and those who are joining us online. We are in the middle of this series. We've been doing it during the month of August where we've been reflecting on love, not not the emotion of love, but the tangible activities associated with love. It it struck me, here we are in the heart of wedding season, and we've been busy doing lots of weddings, uh, particularly the weddings that have been postponed for a year, and then two years, and then three years, and finally it feels like the door has been thrown wide open. We do lots of reading and teaching on, on love, particularly the passage that we're going to look at in a few minutes. Uh, and we confine it to the realm of romance and, and, and marriage, but most of what the Bible has to say about love is not so much about romance as it is about the tangible actions and choices and attributes of character that are necessary for us to live together in human community. The first week, we looked at how love matters Above everything else, this was Paul writing. He says, you know, if you win at love, you cannot fail at life. Uh, But the corollary is, if you fail at love, then you cannot win in any other aspect of life that will make a lasting difference. And the equation that we used for this, you remember the formula, that everything minus love equals nothing. Right. That's what Paul says. That's 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll read it in just a moment. Last week, we looked at how patience and kindness are the two great positive attributes of love, and how hurry, that frantic pace of life, is the great enemy of love in our day. You cannot love people in a hurry. And so all week, we've been working through a series of practical exercises, you remember them, about trying to eliminate a little bit of the hurry from our lives, but living in a more relaxed, unrushed, unfrenzied, patient rhythm of life. For many of us, we're going to practice that in our driving. And I started to hear at about six o'clock on Sunday, like six hours after the message, how hard that already was just to slow up on the roads, just to come to a four-way stop and actually really stop. And we would get requests saying, listen, these things, they're just so so deeply rooted in my life. Can we have another week to work on this impatience? And of course, the answer is no, because we're in a hurry. We have to move on to the next subject in the list. But of course you can. Paul says that love is patient. And it's kind. And those words, patience, kindness, they are embedded in arguably what is one of the most revered and cherished and most often quoted influential descriptions of love that's ever been written down in human history. And so if you have your Bibles with you or a device, let me invite you to look with me at 1 Corinthians in chapter 13. And while you're finding that, 1 Corinthians 13, I think a lot of people look at passages like this because if they've heard it before, chances are they've heard it at a wedding. They think of it as a kind of poetry, that these are, are, are words that are soft and, and, and sort of warm and, and fuzzy, and you'd find them inside a wedding greeting card. But I guarantee you this, when these words were first read to the church that first received them, a church in the ancient city of Corinth, the last thing they got out of these words were warm, fuzzy feelings. Au contraire. See, I told you I had a daughter that just moved to France. I'm working on my high school French. Au contraire. Uh, 
Paul, in these words, would have given them the equivalent in written form of a kind of cuff in the cheek. I mean, this is a, this is a hard word. And we're going to look at the hardness of it this week. Words that are actually quite deliberate, quite provocative, a challenge to the disruptive, messy status quo of their lives. Now, what, what prompted Paul to write to Corinth? And Paul is writing letters. Remember, he, he writes these things. They get sent to a church. The church gathers for its regular meeting like we're doing now. And instead of a sermon, you would read the whole letter. So when you think it's too long or when you think the sermon is too long, have a look at 1 Corinthians 13. The whole thing will be read. And then it would go to the next church in Corinth, the next Sunday, and the next. It would be read and it would be read. And, and it's addressing specific needs, specific concerns in the life of Corinth. What was the concern? The concern was that they had adopted a set of, I guess you'd call them caustic attitudes, behaviors, the way that they would treat other people within the church and within society, social climbing, seeking after status, clamoring after money, and so on. Actually, Corinth as a whole city, they were famous for this, but it infected the church as well, and it was wrecking their community. There were three problems in particular, and Paul calls them out on these things, and he just hammers them home. He writes, for example, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I know you're in 13, stay there, but trust me, this is in chapter 3. He says, you are still worldly. Now, those were fighting words. When they heard those words, they don't think, we think worldly, well, that means they wear too much makeup and they go to the pub every once. No, that's not what worldly meant for them. To be worldly means to be opposed to everything that God stands for and what the kingdom of God is meant to be about in the world. That's worldly. This is how he fleshes it out. Since there is all this envy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? And he has a lot to say about how envy leads them into rivalry and factions and, and ego. And it leads to a second problem. So here's number two. The first is they're worldly. The second, he says, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21. So then, why is there all this boasting going on about human leaders? He asks the question, why do you boast? He makes this statement. All this boasting, it's not good. In fact, that word boast, well, it's not used a lot in the in the Bible, it's like 37 times total in the New Testament. It is used more here in this little letter to the church in Corinth than all the other times put together. Why? They got a problem with boasting. There's a huge amount of envy going on. There's all this boasting going on, and all of that reflects a third problem, and this is the deeper problem. This is the inner problem. And Paul is going to use a really rare expression to describe it, but it's a very visual expression. This is the only time it's used in the Bible. It makes us sort of perk up when we hear it. Think, think Pufferfish when he writes this. You are so puffed up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Puffed up. I mean, it's kind of a, I don't know, it's a colorful term, isn't it? It's like inflating a balloon. It looks really big on the outside, but it's just filled with what? Yeah, a lot of hot air. Envy is something that you do. Boasting is something that you do. Puffed up is something that you are. 
And so Paul hits them with these three problems. He deals with them over and over and over again. You envy, you boast, you're puffed up. You envy, you boast, you're puffed up. And then in the middle of all of this, it's not like he gets to chapter 13 and says, oh yeah, I was going to write something for wedding services. No. Chapter 13 is the great response to the problems that they have. This beautiful, inspiring, sometimes we think of it as a feel-good lollipop of a passage. It's not that at all. Listen to what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love. I'm what? A resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and I can move mountains. I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. But I have not love. I'm nothing. He goes on. He says, even if I give away all my possessions, give my body over to the flames, if I don't have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. We looked at that last week. Two positive descriptions of what love is like. And to everybody in Corinth, they're, they're kind of, hey, Paul, great. We feel good about all of that. They're just kind of basking in the words as we so often do when we hear them. And then he puts the hammer down. This is what love is not. Here's what love does not do. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. It's not puffed up is the language. In other words, you know what love is not like, Corinth? Love is not like you. Love is the opposite of you. You all remember that sitcom, Seinfeld? How can you not remember? Seinfeld is on every hour of the day somewhere in syndication. One of the lead characters of Seinfeld, of course, George Costanza. How would you describe George? Uh, (laughs) He's he's a disaster of a human being, isn't it? He's kind of a, a loser, and he knows that about himself. He knows he's such a loser that he realizes one day, he says, my life... My life is nothing like what I wanted. Every decision I make turns out wrong. Every instinct is wrong. It's all wrong. And so he lands on this strategy. I'm going to do the opposite. Whatever my impulse tells me to do, whatever I'd normally do, I'm going to do the opposite. Works out great. Suddenly women are attracted to him. Suddenly he's finding success in his job. All just by doing the opposite. So Paul is not being subtle here in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul is saying to this church in Corinth, you know what? You folks are the George Costanza of churches. You are the opposite of what love is supposed to be. In case anybody misses, I mean, it's not likely, but the next two items that he has chewed out Corinth on are for what they are. They are self-seeking and egocentric, and they dishonor each other because of all of this rivalry and ladder climbing. The next two items is 1 Corinthians 13, that love is not, this is in verse 5, love does not dishonor others, and love is not self-seeking. In other words, deliberately, not once or twice, but five times, Paul says, love is not like you. It's not like you, or you, or you, or you. And Paul is saying all of this in love. That's hard, because, I mean, these are harsh Words. In fact, it reveals something about the nature of love. And love, biblical love, is not primarily an emotion. It's not about affect. Love is not about making people feel good. Not always. That's hard for me. Because I want to make people feel good. 
I'll say the things that will make them feel good, even if it's not the thing they need to hear. Love is not primarily about making people feel good. Love doesn't want people to miss out on the things that matter most. And what matters most for Paul is making sure that this community of followers of Jesus are growing closer with each other and closer to Jesus himself. And in doing that, there's going to be a simple strategy. It's the Costanza strategy. Do the opposite. That was kind of Jesus' message all the way along. Do the opposite. And so for the rest of the talk, I want to focus on on this one part of the teaching of 1 Corinthians 13. With that in the back of our mind, do the opposite. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5 starts, love does not envy. And here's why. Envy, in many ways, is not just a sin. It's kind of the opposite of love. A person of love, we feel enhanced by the well-being of other people. A person, when we're envious, we feel diminished by the well-being of another person. When I love somebody, I want to build them up. I want to see them succeed. I'm overjoyed when I see them thrive. But when I envy them, I'm always comparing myself to them. I want to see them torn down. I want to see them fail so I can outdo them. No one can get rid of envy just by trying really hard not to envy. In fact, that's, that's never the way of spiritual maturity, of spiritual transformation. Envy only gets overcome when it gets crowded up by other things. It's kind of like growing a great lawn. How many of you grow a great lawn? Not me. Yeah. Because my strategy for the lawn is to mow it every once in a while, and when the weeds get taller than the grass, I pull them out. I don't have a great lawn. My dad has an immaculate lawn. And he does it not by weed pulling. In fact, he hardly ever has to pull weeds. He does it because every spring he aerates the lawn. Six times a year he fertilizes the lawn. He he seeds and he overseeds the lawn. And the rationale is this. If the grass is healthy and thick and plush, there's no way for the weeds to take root and grow. That's Spiritual maturity. You don't overcome envy just by gritting your teeth. You overcome it by nourishing God's good gifts in your life so that stuff like that gets crowded out. Of course, one of the great things for us about living in the GTA is that, thank God, with the help of all of our technology and all of our education, we have basically eliminated envy from our culture, right? We are so smart. We are so wise. We slowed down to enjoy the the leisurely pace of life. We're no longer concerned about image management or being smarter. We are modest people. We live contented with quiet hearts. Thank God. But imagine that the GTA were just a little bit like Corinth. We're a little bit driven by envy and rivalry. And listen, I'm in... There's a certain amount of this that's just about honesty. And so uh, let me be honest with you. Uh, it's been true of me. I will for your amusement because we're, uh, I know we're past 12 o'clock. For your amusement, I'm going to give you a list of some of the people I've envied in my life. But I'm not naming names. I have envied profoundly people who are more athletic than me. People who are, 
Thanks, Tim. Uh, I've envied the people who are smarter than me, and there's a bunch of them here this morning. I envy the guys who are better looking than me and got better dates than me. Actually, they got dates at all. I envy weightlifters for obvious reasons. Hockey players, musicians, people who are more extroverted than me. People who are better pastors, better speakers, better writers, better leaders than me, and there's loads of them. People with perfect families, Nathan, and perfect, they're perfect parents with perfect kids, and they have perfect meals, and they, they go on perfect vacations, and they, they do perfect posts on Facebook about all of these things in order to torture me. People who get a tan. Oh, yeah, I envy those. People who are great at confrontation. And they never pout, and they never use the silent treatment when they're mad. They just get more articulate. I envy those who are movers and shakers, and they have perfect hair and perfect resumes and perfect clothes, and they do it all so effortlessly. There are people who, who never break a sweat. Uh, the people just, they have it all together. Uh, and if there are any of you here today who don't have a problem with envy, I envy you too. Right, so there we are. I envy, and because of that, there's a certain amount of puffed-upness that I know is part of who I am. And I like to pretend that I'm above envy, and I'm a pastor, and so I shouldn't boast. But pastors, we are great at boasting because we disguise it in ways that don't sound boastful. So pastors, we get together and said, yeah, coming out of COVID, we're only getting, I don't know, 250 people on a Sunday. You see what I did there? Because I know everybody else in the room who have the much harder job is struggling just to get their 20 people out to worship. I was talking to my wife this week about how a very well-known, high-profile Christian leader in the city uh, was guilty of, from my point of view, from yours too, of some really poor behavior. Got caught, has been written up in the, in the newspaper and Underneath all the judgmentalism, I acknowledge there's just a little bit of envy to see somebody brought down. Well, it doesn't envy. It's really important, you know, to, to understand that Paul in this passage, he's not issuing a series of commands, do this, don't do this. He's just calling it the way that it is. This is what love looks like, and this is not. Envy is the opposite of love in a way that most sins are maybe not. Greed is a sin. I might be greedy. I might want to have as much money as you have. But if I envy you, I don't want to have just as much money as you have. I want you to have less. That's what envy does. I want you to be diminished. I want something bad to happen to you. That's the opposite of love. That competitiveness, it just it creeps in so quickly. In many ways, I think this issue is just as live, maybe more live for us today as it was for the church in Corinth. There's a, there's a researcher, and she's kind of pigeonholed why this might be the case. Alexander Samuel has documented the impact of social media on envy. What's happened with social media? We now have more access to more stories of success by more people, average people, just people like us, than ever before in history. And because everybody is recording their triumphs, it seems like everybody has better jobs, 
better ideas for decorating and they go on better vacations and they have better kids and better dining experiences. And, and the more time that I spend on social media, the more envy creeps in. It's a miserable thing and yet we do it to ourselves and we just keep logging the hours on Facebook. At the same time, it's not just this contemporary phenomenon. This is as old and as subtle as, well, the very origins of human history. The oldest story of sin that we have in the Bible after the garden, the oldest story, is a story of envy. You remember the story? Two brothers, Cain and Abel. God invents family, invents this, this environment for love to flourish, for people to grow and mature in love. And we're told in this one compact little passage that you've got these two brothers, Cain and Abel, and they're bringing their offerings in worship to God. Abel brings joyfully the best that he has, the choice bits, the firstborn of the flocks, the best, uh, or the firstborn of the herds, and the best of the flocks. Cain is there too, but he's maybe going through the motions a little bit more. Abel is, is feeling this closeness, this intimacy with God. Cain doesn't have that, and it's painful for him. And he wants it. And instead of looking at his own heart, his own motives, which he could have, he deceives himself into believing that the problem is not him, the problem is his brother. Every time he looks at Abel, he envies and he feels bad about himself. So the thought occurs to him, what if there was no Abel? Now God tries to help him out. Fascinating passage, Genesis chapter 4, verse 6. God says to Cain, he says, why are you angry? Why is your face so downcast? If you do what's right, Won't you also be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching there at your door. It desires to have you. But you must rule over it. Why are you angry? Why are you downcast? In response to that word from God, silence. Just says Cain is silent. You have this feeling that if if he had really heard it and received it and confessed it, That somehow what happens next could have been avoided. But envy destroyed his soul, and then it destroyed his brother. And after Cain murdered his brother Abel, God says in this unspeakably poignant, painful passage, Genesis 4.10, says, Now the blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. Of course, God made the ground. God made everything. God made Cain. God made Abel. God never made the ground to receive the blood of his children. And it's been receiving them for a long time now. From Cain and Abel, this green thread of envy runs all the way through the Bible and through history. If you know the Bible, you know some of these stories. Sarah, from the very beginning, the mother of the people of God, envies Hagar because of her child. Isaac, promised son of Abraham, and his brother Ishmael, story of envy. Jacob and Esau, the next generation, and Leah and Rachel, then Joseph and all of his brothers, then Miriam and Aaron, who were envious of Moses. Paul says that there are even people who preach for crying out loud out of envy and rivalry. And it still goes on today. And then one day a man appears, and he starts a community whose plan was this. We're going to do the opposite. We're going to do the opposite of envy. And of course, the people who are following Jesus don't know that about him yet. So two of them, James and John, they come up to him one day and say, Hey, Jesus, can you give us this? 
When you come into your kingdom in glory, can one of us sit on your right, the other on the left? In fact, the Gospel of Matthew says that they actually had their mummy ask for them. (laughs) And when the other ten disciples hear about this, they're furious. Not because James and John did something wrong, but because they didn't think of it first. And then Jesus shuts them all up. This is what he says. You know how the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be last. Who teaches that? Not Corinth, not Rome, not the GTA. Whoever wants to be first must be last, Jesus said. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, great people do that, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, guys, here's the plan. Do the opposite. Because your base instinct may be wrong. And it's not working out here on earth. And the blood of every brother or sister cries out from the ground. So let's do something different. Let's do the opposite. Let's make our lives a joyful exercise in trying to serve and enhance and ennoble and equip the lives of other people. Because you cannot stamp out envy just by deciding you're to stamp out envy. Spiritual maturity is not envy management. It's not gritting your teeth. It's cultivating Love in our choices, our behavior, our attitudes, our actions, not so much our emotions. That comes, but that's way down the road. Where love is present, there's just not the room for envy to take root. Think of it like this. There are people in my life, I might call them my circle, or the circle of oneness, my family, my close friends, maybe my church. Some of you, no, all of you, of course. But And within my circle, Uh, we feel like one. If something great happens in your life, uh, that's great for me. There's joy in that. If you hurt, uh, I hurt with you. That's the circle of oneness. But there's another circle, right? There's, you could call it the circle of rivalry. With them, it's the opposite. When they do well, I feel diminished, right? And when they have problems, even though I like to admit it, I feel a little bit better. It's good to see them have problems. Jesus' plan is this. You take the people who currently are in your circle of rivals and you bring them in to the circle of oneness. One family. The Bible says this in one of those, like this is high, high up on the mountaintop verses. Galatians 3 says, In Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, Not a circle of oneness and a circle of rivals. There is neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, neither uh, neither in or out. You are all one. They're one circle. It's that simple. So if you want two catchphrases to take into the week, to try and wrestle through practically, here's the first. Do the opposite. And here's the second. Expand your circle. Expand your circle. Family therapist, a man named Jim Roberts, was visiting his son's fourth grade class. And that particular day, they were going to do an activity, a, 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 a well-known, well-used youth group activity. It's the one where you tie a balloon around the ankle of each of the kids. You've seen this? You can imagine it with me. So each one of the kids has one free leg, one leg with a balloon tied around it, and ready, set, go. And then the job is to stomp on the balloon of the other kid while protecting your own, right? 
it's like survival of the fittest. It's really, it's Darwinian, right? And, and the, the kids who are a little bit quiet, they're just going to hide in the corner and they're just going to try and stay out of it. But inevitably what happens in a few short minutes is the biggest, strongest, meanest kid winds up winning. And so this is exactly what happens. But then, then they bring in another class. And this is the class of kids who have some intellectual disabilities. And the balloons are tied to their legs and the rules are read, and Jim Roberts says he's just ached for what is about to happen next. He thought this is going to be terrible. And the strangest thing happened. They understood the idea that the balloons were there to be popped, but they, they didn't get the dog-eat-dog world part of it. And so what they did instead, methodically, happily, joyfully, they went around holding the balloon for a person so that somebody else could get the fun of stomping it. And they did this until every balloon was popped and everybody cheered and everybody won. They did the opposite. All that hot air, all that puffed upness stomped out. Which game do you choose to play this week? How will you keep score? How many people... Can you help? Do the opposite. Expand your circle. Let me close just with this this word. Uh, I want to say something about envy and the cross. Because on a strictly human level, we know that envy is why the crucifixion happened. We're told that even Pilate saw it. He saw that it was out of envy that the chief priests and the leaders had handed Jesus over to him to be executed. It was Cain and Abel all over again. Jesus was loved and followed. He had charisma and power and authority. He could heal people and touch them. And religious leaders, people who looked a whole lot like me, they took no joy in it. They felt diminished by it. They felt less than. And so in their envy, they hatched this plan to have Jesus killed. And Jesus decided, I will be the object of the worst that the enemy can do the recipient of all of that envy, I will put myself in the place of Abel and it will be my blood that's spilled onto the ground and your envy is spent. And as it's spent and as it's poured out, I will still be there loving you and I'm going to ask God to forgive. The very cross where you think you're defeating me, I will be defeating envy by the power of, of divine love, holy love. And that's what Jesus does. The whole story of the Bible, the whole message of the Bible is the opposite. He was crucified. He was, he was lifted up into his kingdom. One condemned man on his left, one on the right. Envy had claimed in that moment one more victim. He died. He was buried. And normally the earth keeps its dead. Normally blood cries out from the ground. But on the third day, the earth did the opposite. The tomb was empty. Jesus was alive and love triumphed. And now you and I get invited into the circle of Jesus, that one great triumphant circle. We don't have to be puffed up anymore because we're loved. Do the opposite. Expand your circle. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the love that you have for us. Thank you especially for Jesus and the gift of the cross and and the power we find there to expand the circle. Help us now to be so flooded by what that means, that there's just not room for anything else, so that envy has no place to take root in our lives. 
pray this now in Jesus' name.